Welcome to the second episode of the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast. The existential crisis in Guernsey schools has been the big issue of the week. Education, Sport and Culture has been unveiling its plan for three 11 to 16 schools and a post-16 campus at the Osway, bringing academic and vocational education next door to each other. After years of hand-wringing and head-scratching, is this the direction the island will take? Well, I'm delighted to say that the woman at the heart of it all, Deputy Andrea Dudley-Owen, the president of ESC, is with me in our podcast studio. Thank you very much for coming in. So tell me what it is about this model that you're excited about. Well, firstly, I've got to say thank you so much for inviting me to be part of one of your very early podcast series. It's a, it's a real privilege. The preferred model that the committee have uh, honed in on is um, 311-16 schools with a separate uh, co-located sixth form centre which will be uh, a joint working venture with the Guernsey Institute which is College of Further Education Institute of Health and the Guernsey Training Agency. The really exciting prospect about this is a couple of features. Um, Certainly, if we're looking at the post-16 offer for all island children to be able to be educated on one campus together, I think is is just, it's a cultural shift for our kids. Um, And it's one that really cannot be underestimated in its impact and significance for how those kids will feel about themselves in terms of their confidence and self-esteem. It's been uh, a long-known anecdote uh, that uh, kids who uh, don't get the academic grade have to go to the College of Further Education, be educated in substandard facilities and buildings. And, you know, amongst some in our community, the uncomfortable truth is that they just don't value the academic, vocational and technical qualifications that those uh, students achieve. Um, I do. I think that they are equally as important as academic qualifications um, and we really need to start recognising that as a community. Certainly our employers do um, and the the skills-based economy is really strong in Guernsey. We've got an awful lot of small businesses um, and skilled trades uh, that form the backbone of our economy upon which we rely. And with the changing face of uh, professional services and, and administration, there's, there's jobs that are around now that won't be in the future and we really, really have to invest in our kids now. It's absolutely critical because for too many years now we've coasted on the back of the success that the finance industry has uh, given us and, and that's coming to an end. We really need to do something different and we feel that splitting the sixth form away from an 11 to 16 is also more equitable It's a a fairer crack of the whip for the other schools that are 11 to 16 because they inevitably get less investment in them because they're not top-loaded by a sixth form. So we want to provide that equitable offering. And we're also looking outside of the model of far more of a strategic view around how we approach education in terms of the quality of um, teaching, making sure that all of our teachers have got the best support possible, uh, the best professional development, um, and that we're properly aligning the budget to where it's most important, such as special educational needs and uh, disabilities, um, but also in the primary and early years phase, because at the moment there's more money spent 
in senior school than there is in primary. Yet we know that actually to, to ensure you get the best education outcomes, you've got to have that firm and secure foundation coming up from the primary years. So the um, the development at Les Osway, that's the sort of big, that's the sort of flagship of your plan, I suppose. But And uh, I understand your point, but perhaps there's been some snobbishness around vocational education. I think you could call it that, yeah. yes, yeah. But are, are you concerned that it could sort of dilute the academic experience there? No, not at all, not at all. Um, I think that the academic experience in Guernsey is very, very good, and we need to just build on that. Um, and, and there's always room to, for that continuous improvement but I, I think we've we've got a very strong offering in our academic um, uh, area but we also have in our TVQs our, our technical vocational um, qualifications as well but it's about bringing those together and um, if we look at liken it to a, a the business world of a joint working uh, venture that's what we need to achieve to get the best of those both worlds working together to make excellence um, and certainly the synergies that we've been working up in our proof of concept uh, to show that this is is feasible, look really quite exciting in prospect. Uh, getting those two organisations to work uh, together, where they can uh, be mutually beneficial for the students. So you've had two public presentations this week. How have you felt they have gone? What sort of reaction have you been getting? Well, we've had a mixed reaction, to be honest. Um, the first public presentation that we did um, uh, was, was well attended virtually, which I think is the way to go in terms of a lot of these forums. You should do physical and also virtual. Um, and it enabled 400 plus people to be able to tune in and to attend and to listen to what we were saying and to other questions that were being asked and also to ask their questions. Um, there's a lot of interest from uh, previous politicians in this matter. So, of course, we had uh, the questions from those individuals. Um, but certainly feedback that I've had from parents that I know who've contacted me directly and some that I don't know have been really quite positive. This is the first... I mean, I had a message today saying um, this is the first time that I've actually had faith in some of these, these high-level plans uh, really pleased to see them. Love the idea of the co-location. Um, so I've had quite a lot of messages uh, like that. Um, but obviously there's a way to go yet. This is this is just the start of the journey. And I think that people don't quite understand that. And, and that's fair enough because, of course, you have policy letters that have hit before in various stages of completeness or not. Amendments that have come in and completely changed the, the whole proposition um, which again were in various stages of completeness um, so it's understandable that that there is some confusion in the community about what level of detail should actually appear in a policy letter and this committee has chosen very strategically and decisively not to load this policy letter with detail that we feel needs to be in the domain of staff or the student or community body that needs to be worked up once the direction of travel has been approved by the states. And how long will it take for that detail to be worked up? Because that, that point came up at both the public presentations, didn't it? Yeah. Well, clearly, we've got a timeline out till September 2024. Um, and actually, the, the transition doesn't actually start until September 2023. There's no, not going to be any movement. So between now, um, uh, well, it'll be July and September uh, and, and 2023 is where we will be doing ongoing work. And it, it mustn't stop. It must be regular and uh, frequent 
relevant in order to be a collaborative and cooperative working in conjunction with all the key stakeholders. So, for example, um, regular um, forums with the, the staff and community at Lamar de Cartred, because that is a community that has been pulled from pillar to post over successive um, uh, electoral terms and cycles. And they really need special care and comfort and reassurance throughout this whole process um, in order that the, the changes that, that are going to come um, ahead are going to be um, manageable for that community and also weathered well. And you called it a culture shift because I suppose the, the, the grammar school sixth form is a bit of a sacred cow in Guernsey, isn't it? It, it has a, a really good reputation. How, you know, you, I think even your critics will say that this is quite a brave plan. How do you, it, it's so difficult sometimes to change culture isn't it it is and it takes many years which is why i think that there's been a muted response as well because some people have said this is exactly what guernsey needs and others have said oh i'm not quite sure this might be a step too far but myself i've always felt that previous education plans weren't quite bold enough if we're going to change the education model we really need to be making sure that it's future-proofed and adaptable um and uh I, Previous plans, certainly the, the the last plans that came forward, the two school model works, I felt more of the same um, and not really pushing us on into a brave new world that we needed to be. Um, so uh, this particular model has been um, created out of a quite robust process. I'm quite process driven um, and, and quite administratively focused. Um, but so therefore I, I felt very clearly that we had to have a, a neat and tidy process that we we put in place in order to arrive at our destination um, and and then you can always test what you've done against that process and whether the individual steps that you took were sufficiently analytical and robust and and could stand up to scrutiny so we started right at the top what's the purpose of education why do we actually bother educating our kids and, and our community? Um, and so having defined the purpose of education in order to make those valuable contributors to our community and our workforce, you can then get over the, the, the hill that is the, 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 the sort of test of endurance that we've, we've faced with regard to the model and start looking across to the horizon and saying, OK, well, what exact challenges are we, we trying to meet um, in, in terms of achieving that purpose? And those challenges come in the form of Brexit or COVID or an ageing dem demographic and reduced finances and the world just feeling a really a lot more complicated than it used to and, and confusing. So I think that going back through those stages, looking at the guiding principles, which have been heavily influenced by staff uh, consultation uh, processes undertaken by the previous committee, which have been really useful for us, we start to arrive at a model that feels like it's a logical conclusion. And did you consult with the business community when you were drawing this up? Uh, not to the extent that I'd have liked to, but having sat on it, um, economic development for the last four years, being a small business owner myself, I've got a pretty good barometer. I do speak to uh, the leads for IOD and for and for Chamber, and and I used to lead for the um, uh, the finance sector forum. Um, I'm an I'm ex fiduciary by trade, um, so I've got really quite strong links into the the business sector. And um, we know that work's been undertaken, extensive work by the, the Guernsey Institute. We've used research, um, uh, you know, 
from employee uh, surveys, um, sorry, employer surveys in the UK um, around skills development. I led for digital for the last four years. I've got a keen interest there. So it's not to say that I'm by any means a font of all knowledge, but I know that working closely with um, the careers uh, sector, which actually falls underneath education, um, but also skills uh, that we're, we're working up at the moment, that, that we're, our model is starting to push towards something that's more reflective of employer wants and Guernsey's needs in the future. But is there not a case that learning, it should be about the joy of learning and that the actual, the knowledge is the, is the reward? So someone might study, I don't know, medieval history or something, um, which may, probably there's not many jobs in Guernsey around medieval history, but that person they loved it and, and, and it helped them to develop their confidence. Absolutely. And, and the, the joy of learning is something that um, I do recall being criticised for actually being so fluffy. How, how could I be so fluffy rather than looking at, you know, hard academic a- achievement? Well, actually, unless you're enjoying what you're doing, then you're not actually going to achieve in it or succeed. So I stand by um, my, my take that joyful learning, even if you don't particularly like the language around it, is absolutely essential uh, to, to achieve success. And we don't want to uh, create uh, automatrons or, or robots from our students um, our education system, we want well-rounded, confident individuals who are resilient, who have a, a, a joy of learning and know how to learn to, in order to progress themselves. Um, but I would argue that the you know, you, you've used an academic um, uh, uh, example there about medieval history, and, and that's fantastic. I love history myself and, and uh, stu- studied history as well. Um, But actually, you get as much satisfaction from learning skills, applying that knowledge in a practical way, and that's what skills is all about. So you need skills and knowledge in equal measure in order to get satisfaction. Making something, being able to go from zero to something useful, there's nothing more satisfying than that either. So it's horses for courses. We all work differently. Our brains work differently. We're all unique individuals, and that's where that equity that we've placed very high in our priorities comes in because it's all about meeting student needs each and every child is individual and unique and has individual individual and unique needs so we've moved away from equality which is about providing sameness to equity which is about providing um, provision well provision that meets your needs Now, I want to run through some of the points that came up uh, at the public presentations because I noticed there were sort of similar themes or similar questions being asked from both those um, audiences. And one was, um, you know, you've not gone for the 11 to 18 model. And uh, there seems to be quite a lot of uh, evidence from the UK that those 11 to 18 schools perform much better. And even if we look in Guernsey, if we look at Blancheland, Elizabeth College and and Ladies College that have that 11 to 18 um, uh, set up, they're very successful. Well, I'd argue that there's equally as much um, evidence that shows 11 to 16s are successful. And we've got to look about what actually 
when evidence can be found supporting either argument and, and politicians are brilliant at googling stuff and, and pull that out in debate um, which, which sometimes isn't particularly edifying because someone will pull out another piece of evidence which will will counter that and that is is thus when you're having an argument but what we've got to concentrate is the Guernsey context. That's what we've got to concentrate on. The, the ideological argument, which is essentially what it is between 11 to 16 and 11 to 18, is not conclusive. And um, un until that day, we will go round in a circle. And that just gets us nowhere. So we need to move forward on this. We've made a decision that the 11 to 16, we feel, with um, a separate sixth form co-located with the Guernsey Institute, is a strong model for Guernsey. It is fit for our 21st century challenges and is suited to meet our future needs. So um, we also know that um, a large proportion of the Guernsey community has been uh, educated in 11 to 16s, um, that they have done very well. They have had to move site, whether they chose an academic uh, future. 60% of our children are in the Guernsey sixth form. So they have moved from their 11 to 16, whether that be in Ladies College, Elizabeth College or Blanchland. Um, some of them have chosen to go to the College of Further Education. Others have chosen to go into the world of work already. And Blanchland has only just had a, a sixth form uh, Put back so they've been running an 11 to 16 provision um, and I'd argue very strongly as well that the educational outcomes are not determined whether it's 11 to 16 or 11 to 6 to 18 it's determined by the quality of the staff the the strength of the leadership the ethos and cultures and values that that particular school displays those are the elements that start to drive excellent um, educational achievement and attainment, not whether it's 11 to 16 or 11 to 18. Well, that was another point that came up at both the meetings was that, you know, will this model raise academic standards in Guernsey? Because they, when you look at things like the GCSE results, we're, we're pretty mediocre, aren't we? We're sort of, you know, we're slightly better than the UK. And you would anticipate that Guernsey, we're, we're affluent, that we would have much better GCSE results. Well, you've raised two points there. And um, the first is in terms of the, the model itself, um, that we've got to debunk this myth that the model itself is what drives academic outcomes as, or sorry, educational outcomes. It's absolutely not true at all. The model can put barriers in the way of success in education, but it doesn't drive success in education. Again, I go back to the staff and the quality of learning within those settings, within those schools, is far more important than the, the buildings and the configuration. Um, but the other thing that you talk about is um, the GCSE results, and that sort of feeds into to that previous um, point that you made. First of all, GCSE results in of themselves do not determine whether someone's had a successful education or not. People, um, uh, you know, I'm sure if we look back at our own um, academic success records, we may not have all have got our GCSEs um, as when we wanted them on the first go. We may have had to go back for uh, resits. We may be slightly embarrassed about some of the uh, results we got or actually hugely chuffed because we didn't realise that we were going to get those results because actually maybe when we came in, we were going to get a U and actually when we came out, we got a D. Um, so uh, I think that to... to, to 
Yes, we know that success previously and historically has been predicated purely on academic performance, those high stakes exams, but we've got to move away from that because we know that people are successful um, despite exam results. Um, that they go on, they can be late developers, they can uh, move away completely from that academic uh, pathway that they were, were, were on, feeling that it wasn't for them, that they were forced into it, <clears throat> that another career move in, in a completely different area that doesn't depend on academic success is actually where, where their personal satisfaction lies. So we want to start to uh, look at broader measurables so that um, educational um, outcomes can be measured um, not just by that academic uh, feature, that factor, but also by, by other success measures as well. Uh, for example, um, skills achievement uh, throughout the, the life um, cycle of a, a student, um, looking at measures of confidence and resilience and self-esteem. Um, and it's all of those factors, those previously thought of soft skills areas that um, employers never valued but are really seeing as essential now in their workforce that we need to be concentrating on equally to um, the, those high-stakes um, exams of GCSEs and then either A-levels or BTECs or uh, TVQs later on. But I think some people listening might be surprised that um, if, if you're spending up to £60 million on the capital, it's relatively expensive, the revenue costs, and, and you don't seem to want to give a commitment that educational standards or academic standards will will rise i want educational standards to to rise in guernsey um, because we need to be on that journey of, of continual improvement it's never enough just to stand still because actually that's that's what's happened previously and i think we've been quite complacent uh, for the reasons that i said at the top of the interview um, and i think that the model again is not what drives those educational improvements it it's a factor but it's not what drives those. And the other changes that we're looking to make at education um, uh, within the, the, the strategy, looking at um, closer working together between the head teachers uh, through the secondary school partnership, which is in existence already, building upon that, enhancing it, um, devolving greater autonomy to our leaders within the school setting, so our head teachers, giving them more control over their budget. Um, asking them to essentially uh, to take the cash envelope. This is the amount of students that you've got this year. Those are the outcomes that we need you to achieve, and this is how we're going to uh, to measure your success. But supporting them to do that as well, ensuring that they've got the tools uh, that they can that they need in order to manage their staff and manage the pupil numbers uh, within those settings. Not designing this for them on the floor of the house, where previously we've had anti-bullying or um, behaviour policies uh, designed by politicians on the floor of the house. Um, I think that's completely wrong. We we need to empower our um, school leaders not to uh, de-skill them and de-professionalise them. So you, you want educational outcomes to improve? I mean, is, is that a commitment? Is that a, is that a pledge that you could give to the Guernsey community? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and one uh, another way that we're going to be able to do that is by rebalancing the budget, by making those investments, the essential investments in the early years. And as I said before, it doesn't just start at primary. This goes right the way back to year dot. And speaking to um, uh, third sector, bright beginnings, doing work with them around um, that early years. Uh, most vital time in the womb and even before that before people become parents because it's around 
the the stability of the family no matter what that family looks like it's about the stable environment that that family can give the child in its its earliest days and and actually in in pregnancy for a mum um ensuring i think we we take um having a baby uh i don't know it's just something that happens maybe we don't give it the uh, the prominence and we don't enshrine it um as as being so so important and treating mum and dad and um you know the parents of that child with the care that they need um in order to give them the support so that they can support that child um, in those very first um, crucial early days and months and years of their life. Because really that's where it's at. We've got to set that child up at that very, very early stage in order that it can be a successful adult. Um, And I just don't, I just wonder sometimes as a community, we lose sight of that. Um, I've always been very much into the parenting side and and family side, previous um, careers uh, led me into um, setting up uh, Island Mums as is now or sorry Island Families I think it's been taken on to now was previously known as Guernsey Mums and when I had my own children I always felt very keenly that maybe mums who um, and parents who had children weren't sort of set on a a pedestal as they needed to be and and afforded the cosseting that we used to I mean previously mums used to be allowed a convalescence um, uh, time after their baby had been born I think for up to six weeks I can't remember what we used to call it but um, you know they used to wrap them in cotton wool and certainly in other cultures they do that much better than we do now we expect mum to get up out of bed as soon as she's had her baby literally within hours lose the weight go back to work run around um ferrying kids from one place to another and that's just not realistic and it's not fair and it's not fair on the children either we need to give our parents time with their young children and and we also need to be giving parents that support with their child as they go through the education system working really closely hand in hand sometimes that may be lost in senior school Maybe the children want a little bit more independence, but working so closely with the school is absolutely essential, sort of creating that that network and that that bubble around the child as it develops through its schooling um, in order that they become that confident and and uh, uh, resilient adult that we need them to be. I suppose the counter to that, though, is that if you put more money, if you divert more money into those early years, that might leave the the teachers in the secondary school feeling a little anxious. Well, I I don't think so, because certainly what we've heard certain comments about uh, where we talk about the, the class size tipping point, which could lead to maybe one or two um, uh, more children in the classroom in certain groups, um, is that staff are happy to have one, two, three, four, five more students in their group if those students can access the learning. So if literacy is strong, if numeracy is strong, because if you have a child coming up into your class in the senior school whose reading skills aren't very good, no matter what subject you're teaching, that child is going to find it very difficult to be able to access that learning, to be able to understand what is being um, taught to them. So you can have a, a brilliant teacher, but they will have to spend more time with that child. One thing that we're aware of for all children now is that uh, speech skills 
are are not as strong potentially as they used to be and and this is um, happening the, the globe over um, the uh, predominance and prevalence of uh, mobile devices being given to very very young children to swipe um, to look at to entertain um, to uh, to allow parents time um, uh, is really affecting speech and language skills and how do we, as an education provider from the state's education, start to rebalance that? Because when we were younger, you and I, Helen, um, uh, our mums and dads and grannies and grandpas and other caring individuals in our families would have drilled us with nursery rhymes. And we didn't quite realise that that was what was happening and they didn't realise that they were drilling us either. But it was rote learning again and again and again. You know, the songs that you sang when you were little... To the, the, uh, for mum and, and dad to sort of sing you to sleep or that you sang with them or the nursery rhymes they're all part of that language acquisition and development as well as the bonding with the adult as well and and that close contact and the eye contact and that is not happening to the extent that it used to happen when we were little and we're in our 40s um, and that that was only 40 years ago so our children going into the schools now world over are not going in in the first world countries with the or the developed countries with the the language acquisition that they should have at that age that is going to cause us massive problems in terms of our literacy going into senior school and the um, extent to which those children are going to be able to communicate because you know the communication skills are absolutely key in being able to uh, present yourselves to the employer to be able to communicate with other human beings to be able to use language and words um, to be able to drill down into that fine detail of exactly what it is you need to be conveying and you know that very well as a journalist in your career using one word over another can can completely change the tone and resonance of what you're saying so language is absolutely essential and we have got some brilliant things that go on in Guernsey, like um, the Right Stuff um, uh, Festival that, uh, through the Literacy Festival that uh, recently happened, where I think that they had 650 entrants, which is great, and we need to drive that number up. So there's all sorts of things that are extraneous to the model and are a separate conversation, because we've just completely gone off there on a tangent, haven't we, outside of the model, that are more important than the model in driving up educational standards and outcomes. And, and you talked earlier about um, the level of, of, of detail um, that's going to be in the policy letter. And I, I probably should clarify, we, uh, we've not, uh, I've not yet seen the policy letter because we're, we're anxiously waiting for it uh, later today. And uh, I know the pause and review investigation is going to be in there. Can you tell us, uh, what was the, were, were there some conclusions drawn by that pause and review investigation? Oh, absolutely. Yes, there were a lot of conclusions drawn from that. Um, and uh, the pause and review actually has been published online uh, on the state's website. Um, so it's, it's there as well as, as being uh, featured in, in the policy letter as one of these supporting documents. Um, the pause and review was an interesting document uh, that was released on the eve of the outgoing committee's uh, departure from the states. Um, the way in which it had been constructed was using the conceptual two-school model, and it was conceptual because it hadn't been implemented yet. It was used as the benchmark against which all other assumptions would be made to do with the other model options that you could put into that comparison. 
So it didn't get you any further forward because you never knew that what you were moving away from today was better or worse using the comparisons that they'd made. So it was benchmarking a conceptual with other concepts, which if you wanted everything to be equal in terms of facilities, which was what the previous committee had predicated the, their, their model on, that all facilities would be equal, equal rooms, equal um, sort of uh, um, swimming pool provision, sporting facilities, etc. If that's what you were working from, then every other model would have to have the same. So if it was a three-school model, it would have to have three times the, those equal facilities. If it was a four-school, four times those equal facilities. So the more buildings you had, the more expensive, the more settings you had, essentially, the more expensive it was going to be, because that's the logical conclusion. So we thought, well, that just doesn't take us any further forward. It, it still doesn't fix the conundrum of moving from what we have today and knowing that what we're going to move to is going to be any better or worse than what we have today. So let's move away from that type of comparison and that benchmark and actually use the benchmark of what we have today, which is the realistic, that, that is the, the actual model, and benchmark against that. Because then we'll know that any concepts, any other options, would either be better benchmarked against that or worse. And then that proves the case for change. In terms of running the annual running costs, though, um, our, our existing system is regarded as sort of inex- is regarded as expensive and inefficient. And you've said that the running costs of your model will not exceed uh, the, the existing system. But if the existing system is regarded as pretty defunct, really, and not and not working, then was that a good? Was that really a good benchmark? I don't think that the. I think the word defunct is, is not the right word in this context at all. Um, and it's regarded as expensive. Well, who buy? Um, I, I think that that is a narrative that came very strongly out of the previous term, out of the PNR committee then, and working very closely with the then PNR committee, we always and they always found it a real struggle to find where they were going to salami slice the funding from without affecting frontline services. And what we've discovered coming into the committee this term, with a fresh pair of eyes, is that actually. There's a cost envelope. There's a cost to delivering education in Guernsey. And it will change a little bit year on year, depending on how many students you've got and staff you need, etc., and other factors. But actually, it's roughly around the same. And I don't think that we should be salami slicing from that. But it's clear that the way in which the budget is set and the different budget lines are set, that there's not a fair provision across the sectors. And I I illustrated that earlier in our interview that there's more spent on secondary school students than there is in primary. Yet we know that in order to affect secondary school outcomes, you need to invest more in primary and, and ensure that the resourcing there is strong. And that doesn't happen at the moment. So that's where we need to start to rebalance in order to ensure that we can um, deliver the send recommendations that we've embraced, the 18 of those, some of which will 
require some really smart thinking around how we use our budget to the most effect. And is there going to be settings and streamings in the in the 311 to 16s? Um, well, the schools, um, as we currently have them, do uh, set in certain subjects. And to me, that's not really something that the committee should be deciding. Um, that's, that really is another one of those operational areas that uh, we should be allowing our school leaders to determine whether they think that's appropriate for their school or not. Um, that again, that there's there's been a lot of arguments around this um, in the past, but um, th- that's really where we want to be empowering our school leaders to be able to determine whether they think that setting or, or streaming is appropriate for their school. And do you feel a lot of sort of pressure on your shoulders because this model it's going to affect thousands of of children? Is that a lot of uh, a strain for you? <laughs> I'm quite a calm person, and I. Th- I often go the other way, that actually when a lot of other people are finding an environment or a situation very pressured, I actually become a little bit more zen. (laughs) Um, And so absolutely, this is hugely important and significant. Our, Our success as an island rides on how we as estates can be decisive and confident in our decision making going forward. Bringing this forward... I feel actually privileged. I don't feel pressured. I feel hugely, hugely privileged to have been entrusted by the Assembly to do this and also have a really strong support base within the community. Um, Just thinking about the the election results, which were quite shocking, actually, for me. I didn't realise that 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 I'd, I'd be getting anywhere near that amount of support. But... As I say, I feel privileged rather than pressured. But how do you cope with all the criticism and the, and, um, the concerns of teachers, that sort of thing? <laughs> I, I'm, well, um, the concerns of teachers are one thing, um, and, and that, that's not something that I take lightly at all. The criticism depends who it's coming from, um, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm the youngest of, of three girls uh, and I'm from a very big family, so um, I have uh, broad shoulders and a thick skin, um, and I think that... You just don't take yourself too seriously. There's always someone out there who's got a better idea. um, And I'm always, always willing to listen. Um, Even if some of the criticism is um, pretty spurious from some quarters, I'm always happy to listen to it. Uh, Whether I take it on board or not um, depends on how constructive it is. But I always will listen to the other side of the story. And I always will question whether uh, my thinking... Um, aligns well with that criticism and whether I could do better in, in, in the conclusion that I'm coming to. In terms of the concerns from teachers, we will support them on this journey at every step of the way in order to ensure that the change that we are implementing is well managed, um, is well understood, frequently communicated and well consulted so that Uh, the results of the change are going to be positive because there's no other way to do it. And change management isn't easy, but it's not something that the States has done well in the past. And I'm determined that this committee, that this States is going to do better than it's ever done before in terms of change management. Because ultimately it's the 40 States members who will decide on this. Do you think it will sail through in July? Sail through? It shouldn't. It, It should be, it should undergo challenge. 
and um, and questioning. We need to be able to make our case robustly and assertively. This needs to be the final discussion that we have on this, the once and for all. And so, yes, it needs to succeed, but sail through, no. I think it needs a, a day of debate. If it has amendments, so be it. They will help to reassure us that this is the most that, well, this is the best fit for Guernsey. All right, Deputy Andrea dudley and I know you're the busiest woman in Guernsey today because you've got to go and uh, dot some I's and cross some T's on some policy yes. letter, haven't you? So I better let you go. So that's it for the Politics Podcast. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, don't forget to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast player. And if you're feeling in a generous mood, then you could rate and review us as well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you.